Well, if you missed, uh, if you missed last week with Sonia, I, I just want to do a quick recap, because Sonia, I appreciate what you brought to bear on this thing. We're trying to do a three-part series, giving three different perspectives on, on what Christmas is all about. And she kicked it off with just an amazing perspective. And I, I love the, the picture puzzle concept, the idea that, that we all have a piece of this puzzle that we play, and, and none of us really sees the big picture, but we all have something unique to connect. And so she talked last week about Mary and Elizabeth and the connection that they had. It was kind of a, a small little piece of this huge pie that God is creating, the huge picture. And uh, she talked about in terms of personal mission, uh, that they had a God-ordained desire to do something significant. And there was a humility that went with that. Uh, there was a divine timing, and God was inviting them into a divine purpose. And, and it just began to expand from that point. She, she talked about this holy collision when Mary and Elizabeth came together, there was sort of this spark that happened as these two pieces of the puzzle connected, and all of a sudden they begin to see, oh, wow, this is way bigger than we thought, and we just had no idea. Uh, and then she expanded it even into some of the examples today that are going on in our own midst with her own husband and uh, just some of the amazing things that are going on, but just showing how God is connecting these pieces. And, and it was just so awesome. And then a time of ministry that happened after that as, as we just kind of broke off the idea that some of us are in seasons of waiting and, and uh, you know, you just feel like this, you're stuck. And, and, and you're like, okay, God, what is my purpose? What am I doing? And, and just you facilitated a beautiful time. And that was so awesome. So I get to build on that. And I think this morning what we're going to do is um, kind of go into the unfolding story. We're going to kind of break out this picture into a little bigger piece here. The idea that there's some key players that, again, divinely come together. The Magi, Herod, and Jewish leadership. And uh, what I love about this is it's an intersection now of the secular and the sacred. It's, it's kind of like these two things coming, and God begins to pull the camera back on this picture a little bit more, and we begin to understand uh, there's more pieces of this divine puzzle coming together. And so it's kind of like he gives us this little snapshot of, of what this is looking like. And we can't see the big picture, but God is putting together this amazing portrait, this amazing picture of his purposes in all of creation. So it's beautiful. And uh, so to set, set this up, I just wanted to kind of give us a little historical context of what's going on. Because at the point that the story of Christmas unfolds, there's been a 400-year period of silence, biblically speaking. I mean, the last, uh, they hadn't had a Jewish king in over 400 years. I mean, the last guy, uh, Zedekiah, did not end well. Uh, I think they uh, came in, Nebuchadnezzar came in and basically said, uh, because you've disobeyed and it's gone all haywire and stuff, I'll, I'm going to allow you the privilege of watching me kill your children, and then I'm going to gouge your eyes out and take you in chains to Babylon. So that, that was not a rousing way to end the kingship of the, of the Jewish nation, but that's how it ended. And... 400 years go by, there's no Jewish king, and interestingly enough, what happens is the Roman Empire comes, starts coming on the scene right about the time that Jesus is born, and interestingly enough, the, the Roman government at the time declares that Herod is going to be the new king of the Jews. And so here's this appointed king that uh, the Jews had nothing to do with. Interestingly enough, a little bit about uh, Herod, he was actually raised Jewish. I didn't know that. But he was actually raised Jewish. Uh, I think I called him a gino. He's a Jew in name only. Um, because he basically did not, uh, did not live up to the Jewish traditions by any stretch. Uh, he was ruthless. Um, he did a lot of detestable practices. 
Uh, he killed his wife. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed three of his sons. He killed 300 of his military leaders. He just basically was not a nice guy. But yet he was the appointed king of the Jews. He was plagued by paranoia and depression. The guy lived his whole life just constantly looking over his shoulder. And, and, and he constantly played these political favors with the Jewish people. You know, he wanted to be in with them. And he, he, the way he got in was he rebuilt the Jewish temple. He was, he was the third, third attempt at rebuilding the temple. And he went lavishly on it. And so he was obviously pretty tight with the, the Jewish leadership. So this is all context of what happens as we enter into Matthew 2 and Jesus arriving on the scene. So I wanted to just kind of read this with you guys. Um, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, asked, where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, when King Herod heard, that, heard this, he was disturbed. Let's just call it politely disturbed. He was the appointed king of the Jews. There's some new king coming on the scene, right? And all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests, teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Again, demonstrating that he was not exactly a great Jew. It's like, where was this supposed to go down, guys? They said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So then Herod calls a little secret meeting. He brings the Magi secretly and finds out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, hey guys, go and search carefully the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Right? Playing the old religious, hey, I'm a nice Jew too, and I would love to worship this new Jewish king, right? Well, after they heard the king, uh, they believed his snow job. They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But then God was on to Herod's little plan. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. What an interesting little docudrama. In the midst of all that's going on, and I think that I was reading this story, I was just reading this passage here this past week, and God just kind of downloaded a whole bunch of questions to me. And that's kind of the perspective I'm coming at with this particular part of this series. It's like, there's a lot of questions I got. And I want to kind of dive into three of them with you guys. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all the quandary and I had in my brain. But anyway, I want to look at three aspects of this. And I'm kind of looking at this like three pieces of the puzzle that God is, again, beginning to put together for us and begin to unveil his purposes and plans. So the first one, I mean, the whole story starts with this dramatic sign in the heavens, right? This, the star of Bethlehem. And uh, what was really interesting, I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, there was actually a documentary that came out called The Star of Bethlehem. I don't know if you guys saw that or not, but they, they were employing science with a lot of what was in the scripture, and they came up with this theory that the star was actually Jupiter, and it had come into alignment with Venus, and it became extra bright, and uh, it actually was what the Star of Bethlehem was. It was very, very uh, popular, got Dove Awards. It was a very awesome thing. Well, a number of years later, a new book came out, and this is the book here called The Great Christ Comet. 
And uh, as I got into this, uh, I haven't read this book, but I've read all sorts of reviews on it, and I'm intrigued enough that I think I want to go buy it. But this guy, Colin Nickel, was a biblical scholar. He uh, taught at Cambridge. He went to Gordon-Conwell School. Um, but he basically uh, said, I want to find out how could a star lead somebody somewhere? And uh, that wasn't really answered in the previous documentary. And so he, he got involved in this thing and, and he started looking at the scripture passages. And of course, being a biblical scholar, he found all sorts of related passages that were fascinating. One being Revelation 12, where it's talking about the, uh, you probably think about that, where there's a woman who's having the child. It's kind of a foretaste, a forecasting of Jesus, right? But then it's this battle with the dragon that appears on the scene. But there's some astronomical things that are talked about in there, about the 12 stars and the moon beneath her feet. This guy plugged it into a program called Starry Night. And uh, basically what that map is, it's, it's a program that we use in, uh, in observatories today that allows us to actually map how the stars are moving, and it allows you to go back in time based on, on movement of the stars. It's crazy. So he rolled the tape back to the time of Christ based on the, on the things that are mentioned in Revelation, and it all lined up. And it turned out that this star actually had a lot of qualities of a comet. And I, I can't go, begin to go into all of it, but it's just it's really cool, really fascinating. And he begins to tie it into some of these Old Testament prophecies in Numbers where Balaam prophesies about a star. Uh, he talks about Isaiah 7 and 9, you know, where again it's the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, and that there's going to be a star, and, and it's just, apparently, it's like a college textbook. So if you're in the collegiate textbook mentality, this would be a cool book to read. What I came away with was, though, I love that God uses science, and I love that he uses the Bible and the merging of the two, and it's powerful, and it reinforces my own faith. Okay, something spectacular happened back then. And so this is what motivated these magi, these, these wise guys, uh, to, to impart on a journey. And so that's the second thing that I begin to notice here. Okay, the dramatic signs appear, and it begins to set up this divine collision of secular and religious. And I think what happened is, is that God began to move through the secular to shake up the religious community. Because the Jews have become kind of lulled into complacency over 400 years. There had not been a lot happening. There was not a lot going on. And so they were just kind of cruising into cruise control. And they kind of liked the idea of this new king coming in. Hey, there's some political power. We're seeing our temple be rebuilt. Hey, man, we're in the money right now. Things are going great for us. But God infuses the secular to shake up the spiritual. And uh, I thought about that in terms of the Bible. You know, that happened a lot in the past, did it not? God used Pharaoh with Moses, uh, Artaxerxes with Nehemiah, Cyrus with Ezra, Xerxes with Esther, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius with Daniel. These are all kings, secular dudes who are impacted or influenced a movement of the spirit. Which actually, as a little aside here, I have to say something. Um, I'm not meaning to be political here at all. I don't know what your political persuasion is, but I'm here to tell you there's something interesting about what's going on with our president right now and the spiritual. And again, I think what I see happening is God taking a guy who's far from godly, can we just say that? And he's using him to institute some of the most radical changes and favorable environment for Christianity in, in, in our American history. 
Very interesting. And I think that it comes into play in this whole thing. It's, it's the signs of the times. It's knowing what's going on. And we need to watch these things carefully. And so, again, unprecedented doors opening. Now, a lot of scholars believe that the Magi um, were actually from the Babylonian Persian world. And, it, and here's the ripple effect of this. You know, God exiles. Here's part of the puzzle pieces coming together, right? What does God do? He, he exiles Israel to Babylon for a season. What is it? 70 years, right? And during that time, we see Daniel, we see Nehemiah, we see uh, Ezra appear on the scene, and all these guys have an impact on the Babylonian culture. He elevates Daniel into a position of preeminence, and, and I'm here to tell you, Daniel became one of the wise guys in Babylon, and he began to set a tone for all of the wise men who were to follow him. I have to believe that Daniel left a legacy. I think he left a legacy that, 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 that Babylonian Persian culture was all too familiar with Hebrew culture. They were very familiar with the God of, of the Hebrews. And so when this thing whole happened, you know, this astrological sign developed here, their ears perked up. And it's like, whoa, once again, this Hebrew thing, it's, it's got some legs to it, Right. And they were so intrigued by this and the idea that this Jewish Messiah was going to come on the scene that they said, let's pack our bags and trek 500 miles or so and go check this thing out. Let's see for ourselves if this is really what's happening. And I think this, this is really interesting. This is now where we begin to have these intersections. The first intersection I saw was the Magi and the Jewish leaders. Here is the secular encountering the religious, right? And... and uh, a lot of people say that these Magi dudes, uh, they were kind of used to kind of going off and visiting kings because of the signs they would see in the stars. The stars would indicate to them certain changes of power, and they would go off and actually follow the thread. Well, in this case, they didn't just follow the thread for a visit. They went to worship this king. I got to think that that's pretty unusual. Yes. I don't think they were going off worshiping the other kings. But there was something, again, about this Hebrew king. And uh, what, I, what I noticed, and again, this is one of the questions I asked myself, it struck out to me, okay, how come these guys who are secular are so interested in the Messiah, and the Jewish leaders kind of give a ho-hum, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and that's the last we hear of him, you know? Really interesting to me that the secular guys had the passion, they had the heart, and, and the religious leaders were like, well, whatever, you know? And what's fascinating to me is that even 30 years later, after Jesus appears on the scene and he starts raising a ruckus in the Jewish culture, nobody in the Jewish leadership connects the dots. Hey, guys, do you remember back there a couple of years ago, there was that wild entourage that came through from uh, Persia or whatever, and, and didn't they were talking about the Messiah? No connection. Zero. Zip. Nada. It's really interesting to me. In fact, I think that the second intersection here of secular and, and sacred was Herod connecting with this guy, Jesus. He encountered a threat. Secular leader, granted he was Jewish in name only, a gino, but he was intersecting with all of a sudden a real king, a real messiah. And, and <laughs> I love how scripture puts it, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him was slightly disturbed. However, the only one interested in actually doing something about it was Herod. So he has this little meeting where he calls the boys in, right? 
Uh, and I, I got to imagine that was an interesting meeting. You know, how does this guy come across to these really quite intelligent people as very interested? Oh, man, hey, guys, I, I'm really interested in this deal. You know, I mean, I've been looking for this Messiah for a long time. And, and so if you can tell me where he is, just go find him. Uh, he's in Bethlehem, I hear. And, uh, and just go and do that, would you? Okay, fascinating. Did the Jewish leaders do that either? Nobody of the Jewish leadership said, hey, hey, Magi, would you come and talk to us a little bit more about this? Uh, we're kind of curious too. We'd like to kind of tag along and see. No interest. Herod was the guy who was interested. Well, uh, his response to the threat was, hey, let's kill this kid. That was his response. Typical tyrant leader. He was worried about his power being threatened, and so his response was, let's just torch the child. Okay, third encounter between the spiritual and the secular was the Magi and Mary. And again, these are the guys who had a hungering heart, but they didn't know really what they were looking for. And, and I think a lot of people say, you know, we have our favorite nativity scenes where we put the three, the three wise men and, and the shepherds, they were all there on the same night having a big party. Uh, historically, a lot of people are saying, nope, probably didn't happen that way. The shepherds were the ones who definitely appeared there on the night of, uh, and, but the wise men, it, there's no real timetable on that. In fact, it's likely that he, they appeared afterward, maybe even significantly afterward. But um, I got to think about Mary, though, in this context. when these Okay, she's already had a lot of collisions, right? Sonia, she had the collision with the angel. She had the collision with Elizabeth. Uh, she also had the collision when... Um, the shepherds arrived there. I'm sure that kind of freaked her out. Seven days later, they go to dedicate Jesus, and she runs into, uh, what, these two, Anna the prophet, and uh, who's the other dude? I can't think. Simeon, yeah. Uh, who start saying pretty radical things to her. So she's kind of already set on edge about all this stuff. I love the scripture again. It says, pondered it in her heart. It's like, that's a way understatement on that. Like, Seriously. She had her cage rattled is what happened probably. But then... Who knows, X, X number of days, weeks, months later, this entourage from Persia arrives, and it rattles the entire community. And, and so you got to think, what's going on in her heart? Because not only do they just come and visit, they're coming, and they're bowing down, and they're worshiping, and they're handing him gifts, extravagant gifts. So again, it's, it's a very interesting picture of secular inter. inter intersecting with the religious or with the spiritual. So, um, again, my takeaway on this. I saw three different responses that I think, honestly, you guys, are, are responses we're seeing today. Among the Jewish leaders, what was their response? As a spirit of religion and a spiritual pride. They weren't really interested in it. I know all that stuff. Yeah, whatever. Obviously, you know, we know what's going on. You don't. They were content to go with the status quo. I look around in our, in our world today, and I ask this question. As a church, have we become spiritually proud? What's our reaction? What's our response to Jesus? Are we just kind of, yeah, he's cool, but we've got something going on here. Comfortable. Second response I saw was Herod's. And despite the fact he had religious trappings, his was active rejection. 
It was a spirit of fear and control that he had. He was afraid that his power was going to go, and he wanted to control the situation. And typically people who are in those kinds of situations, the bullies in life, those who, want, who put on the big bravado front, are actually very insecure inside. And so that's another response that we see to Christianity, we see to Jesus in our culture today. It's just sort of the spirit of, I don't need that stuff. It's just this active rebellion like, you wimps, you think you need all that stuff? The third response I saw was what the Magi had, and I love this. It's a spiritual hunger. It was just they were moved to joy, they were moved to joy, to worship and giving. They saw these signs and they became enraptured by the one. And so again, just read this verse again and just notice their response. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That's the heart of a seeker. When they saw the child, they bowed down and worshiped him. Guys, that's, that's our posture. That's what happened this morning, man. I felt like we saw God here this morning. The spirit of God was in this place and our response was just like, wow. The spirit of the Magi there. When they opened their treasures, they presented him with gifts. And that's, again, that's part of the worship thing, is it not? It's just a natural knee-jerk reaction. When you encounter the king of the universe, you, want to, yes. you just want to give him all that he is due. So that's really what happened in that little snapshot. And it reminded me of my own story. And, and Sonia, this is where I get practical. Because, see, I, I had my Magi experience myself because I encountered Jesus at Christmas time. And I, I've told some of you guys this story, but I was all of 10 or 11 years old. Uh, my sister came home from college, a very different person. And I never had much of a relationship with her. She was much older than I was, but when she walked in the door, she was a very different person. And she was talking about God all the time. And it weirded out my entire family. I mean, they just, they would not get their head around what was going on. They were convinced she got involved in a cult. That was part of it. Um, but I was an easy victim. It was Christmas Eve, and we were going to our church's candlelight service. And uh, I made the mistake. Well, it wasn't a mistake. I was curious. I, I, I stopped her, and I said, Bev, what is going on with you? How come you are so weird right now? And so we ended up sitting down and having a conversation that would change my life. Because, you guys, that night I heard things I'd never heard in church. And she talked, she said, you know, Bruce, uh, I, I learned something. I, I found out that God actually loved me. And, and you know, I, I was intrigued by that. And, and, that, and she said, and Bruce, Jesus loves you too. And I, you know, even at tender age of 10 and 11, I'd, I'd grown up in a church and God was sort of this dude up here and I was down here and there wasn't any connection there, you know? I was like, you know, well, he cares about me? It's crazy. Uh, but then she went on, she said, well, that, that's cool, but there is a problem. And then she went into the whole sin thing, right? And of course, being a nice church boy myself, I knew what sin was. That was all the bad stuff that I had done. And, and so, but I figured one day I was going to stand before God, this huge cosmic scale was going to be up there, right? And all the bad stuff I did was on one side and all the good on the other side. And of course, I was a decent kid, so the good was going to outweigh the bad. And, and I figured that had me in. God was going to be reasonably impressed. <laughs> I found out that night that he wasn't reasonably impressed. She read to me passages that I'd, I'd heard, Romans 3.23, the, the wages of sin is death the free gift of God's eternal life. 
And then, oh, I'm sorry, that was 623. 323 was all of us have sinned. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And, and I, I kind of thought, well, how bad could that be, you know? But then she read that wages of sin be in death thing. And then she had the gall to read me this one in James that said, if I violate even one of the standards, it's like I'm guilty of them all. It's like, okay, awesome. I screw up once and I get the electric chair. I mean, how? <laughs> Merry Christmas. You deserve to die. You know, I mean, that was kind of how it was coming down to me. But fortunately, she didn't stop. And she went on and she said, that's why Jesus came. That's why Christmas happened. See, because God knew we were in an unreconcilable situation. There was no way that any of us, if we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, there's no way we're going to match up to perfection. There's no way holiness is going to be, there's no mixing there. And, and so I, I'd heard the Christmas story, man. I heard about Bethlehem and the wise guys and, you know, the star and all that stuff. But that night I learned something I'd, I'd never heard before, and that was that Jesus came not just to die. I mean, not just to be born, but to die. Um, and I never understood that either. But that God would care about me enough to say, you know, I love you, I want a relationship with you, and, and there's no way you can pay the debt that you owe. I will pay it. I am the perfect sacrifice once for all time. And so he lived his life with that as his mission. He lived his life aiming for the cross, that one day he would... He would be have nails driven into his hand and his feet and he would say this is the punishment that Bruce deserves but I'm thinking guess what it's the punishment we all deserve and I think you know that night I was confronted with something and this again I'd never heard in church she said it's all dandy and stuff to know all that but it requires a volitional response from me. I have to choose to either accept that payment or reject it. I never heard that, had no idea. And, and I was like, well, how do you do that? Because I knew how to receive gifts under the tree, right? You just kind of go, it's got your name on it. You just open it, right? How's, how do you receive this gift? And she said, it's as simple as asking. And so that night, December what was it, 24th, 1969. My couch in my home in North Dakota. I bowed and prayed a prayer that I asked Jesus into my heart. And I felt a lot like the Magi, I think, did. Because I, I, I came face to face with a king. And, and I had no other response to say, I want that. So guys, we are in the Christmas season. And, and I would be remiss if I would just sit down and, and not give you the opportunity that I had. I don't know where, I mean, we're, we're all friends here, right? We, we, we come to church and we can know each other, but we may not know our hearts. And so I'd be, I would be remiss if I didn't give an opportunity like Bev gave me. So I, I just want to, I want to say this, that Jesus, the King, is looking at each one of us today and saying that I love you. I died for you. I want to come into your heart, forgive all your sin, and make you the person I created you to be. Will you let me? Yes or no? <laughs> That's two answers. You know, it's like, yeah, sign me up. Or nope. I don't think so. So guys, I'm just going to pray. 
That's how I want to end this service. I'm just going to extend an invitation. And you know what? Maybe it's the kind of thing where you're, you're maybe you've grown, grown a little distant from the Lord. You're feeling a little cold. Maybe you're, you're lulling yourself into a, a Jewish leader mindset. Like, yeah, man, I've heard all this stuff before. I, I know all the Jesus stuff. And, or maybe you're feeling that distance in your own heart and just saying, man, Lord, I just feel like I haven't connected with you in forever. Then maybe this is a time for you to reconnect with the heart of your Savior. So guys, I'm just going to pray a prayer and you can repeat it in your own heart. Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place to pay a penalty I never could pay. Lord, I accept your payment on my behalf. I receive it. I want you to come into my life. I want you to be my Lord, my Savior. I want to be bowing before my King, submitting to you. So right now, Jesus, I invite you in. I surrender. I give you my heart. Thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name.